Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Jesus, on shortly, in fact, I think it might have been even the night that he was betrayed or the night that he was crucified, uh, he spoke to his disciples in the book of John, really records it. Jesus is just pouring out his heart to his disciples. Uh, there are several chapters where Jesus is addressing them and speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and different things. And at one point, he's preparing his disciples for uh, persecution that's going to be coming. And uh, he says in John chapter 16, verse 2, he says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And, you know, you kind of think, well, where was Paul at this time? Where was Saul? Because Saul uh, was the persecutor, one of the main guys there at that time. Well, it wasn't too long after Jesus spoke those words to the disciples that they would, in fact, start experiencing persecution. And uh, it wouldn't take too long before Stephen would be the first martyr of the church. And it's at the that time when the story in the book of Acts tells about Stephen that we finally we hear about this young man named Saul in chapter 7 verse 58 it says and they cast him out of the city Stephen they're talking about and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul well who was Saul well he was a Roman citizen he was born in the Roman province of Cilicia in the in the city of Tarsus and, uh, you know, being a Roman citizen in the first century was actually a desirable thing. There were people that would purchase their citizenship if they were able to. Well, Paul was born a Roman citizen. And being a Roman citizen meant that you had certain legal rights that other people in the Roman Empire didn't have. So there was a sense of... of uh, uh, you know, distinction being a Roman citizen, especially in Tarsus. And uh, it, we can assume that possibly that R Paul came from a, a, a more of a affluent, possibly at least a moderately affluent family with, uh, you know, some distinction there in the city. Paul wasn't only just a Roman citizen, though. Paul was also a Jew. And Paul descended from the tribe of Benjamin. And, uh, you know, all Jewish young boys... As they grew up, they learned a trade. And we know from the book of Acts and from other places and like Corinthians that Paul was a tent maker. So he learned that trade in Tarsus, learning how to make tents. But it's interesting, and the reason why I say we think that Paul's father or his family must have been moderately affluent or something is because Paul's father evidently had higher hopes for Paul than that he would just be a tent maker because as a young man, Paul was sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. It would be like you and I wanting some real high hopes for our kids to send them to Yale or to Harvard to get this fantastic education. It would be like the best place where they could get an education. I'm not saying it's the best place where you can get an education, but, you know, um, in the eyes of the world it is anyways. And so Paul's father evidently sent Paul to Jerusalem as a young man to study under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a very well-known rabbi. He was very highly respected. And it was said about Gamaliel that when he died, the glory of the law ceased. So, I mean, they just, he was a very important, very influential rabbi there. And Paul was 
influenced by Gamaliel, at least to some extent. Um, his education and his exposure to Gamaliel had an impact on Paul because not only was Paul a tent maker by trade, but Paul became a Pharisee. And Paul uh, didn't just become a Pharisee because there were a lot of Pharisees in those days. Paul was a very good Pharisee. He was blameless according to their standards. Not only was he a good Pharisee, but he was a very devout Pharisee. You know, as you study the life of Paul, he did everything full on. He wasn't a half, you know, he didn't do anything halfway. He poured himself into whatever he did. And he even describes his life as a Pharisee. He says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. As a very zealous Pharisee, Paul wanted to keep Judaism free from, uh, as a Pharisee, I said, did I say heresy? Pharisee. Anyways, as a very zealous Pharisee, Paul wanted to keep Judaism free from heresy. <laughs> there we go. I'm kind of rhyming there. Um, in fact, he says, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. So he was, you know, he saw Christianity as a threat to Judaism. And so being this very zealous, this very eager young man, he did everything he could to stamp out Christianity. Not only was Paul there as a young man watching over the cloaks of those who were stoning Stephen, but it says in chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul was consenting to his death. It means he was completely supporting what was going on with the, with the execution of Stephen. And it continues there in chapter 8. So I'm, I'm picking it up here in chapter 8, verse 1. And it says, At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So here he is. He's, he's getting anybody he can that's a follower of the way, the follower of Jesus of Nazareth, and dragging them off to prison. Then we skip down to chapter 9, verse 1. And it says, Then Paul, or Saul, excuse me, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. You know, that word where it says he was breathing threats. The picture breathing threats is to be like taking a big gasp of air and, you know, trying to hold it. And at, at some point, it's like you can't hold it. Your lungs feel like they're going to burst. You just got to explode that air out of your chest. And that's, the, that's that pent-up anger that Paul had. He, just, he was so full of, of just wanting to stamp out Christianity that, that he was about ready to explode with threats and murder. In fact, he describes the way he felt in Acts 26, verse 11. He says, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Exceedingly enraged. That word means to act as a maniac. I mean, like a madman. That's how Paul was. He was mad or furious. You know, we might, in our vernacular today, might say, man, that guy is way over the top. I mean, he's way, he's gone postal, you know. Um, that's the way Paul was towards Christianity. 
And so he went to the high priest there in chapter 9, verse 1, and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, this is what they called Christianity at the time of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there in verse 5, Paul said, Who are you, Lord? You know, Paul genuinely did not know the voice that he was hearing. He couldn't see anything. He was blinded by light, and all he heard was a voice speaking. Was it God speaking to him? Was it an angel? He didn't recognize the voice of his Savior. And so he says, Who are you, Lord? Now, that's a very polite way to say, you know, can you imagine... All of a sudden, a blinding flash of light, and you hear this voice from heaven speaking to you. You don't know if it's God. You don't know what's going on. And so you just say, who are you, Lord? It's a, it's a very respectful way to address whoever, something's greater than you, speaking to you. And so that's the way Paul responded. Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Most of you know what a goad is. If you've studied this passage of Scripture before, it's a sharp stick with a very pointed end on it. Plowmen used it to get their oxen moving. And so you would jab it into the ox, and the ox would, you know, ow, start moving. You know, you can get them to plod them along. And if an ox kicked against that stick, against that goad, man, it would cause pain and suffering. And uh, it meant basically... To kick against the goads meant you were offering vain and rash resistance. You were actually just hurting yourself. Well, God was using circumstances in Paul's life to bring him, bring him to the point of brokenness and surrender. Remember, he was there standing there when Stephen was stoned. So he un- probably also heard Stephen's testimony. And I can just imagine during that time, God is trying to get a hold of Paul's heart trying to turn his heart, trying, to, trying to, to convict him of his sin and to get him to put his trust in Jesus. And Paul is kicking against it. He's resisting it, and it's hurting him. And so now the Lord brings him to this place where he basically blinds him and speaks to him. Moments before that occurred, Paul had been on a mission. He was hell-bent, excuse the expression, but he was, he was just determined to go ahead and, you know, pridefully go to Jerusalem. I mean, think of it. He had letters from the high priest. So he, he had official, he was on official business for Jerusalem, the headquarters of Judaism. So you can just imagine the pride and probably just how he felt on his mission to do this. And in a moment, everything changed for the Apostle Paul. He wasn't the Apostle then, but everything changed for Paul. Everything that he knew and believed, suddenly he realized, man, it's wrong. Suddenly he realized, instead of serving God by destroying this threat to Jerusalem or to Judaism, he suddenly realized that instead of serving God by doing this, he was on the wrong side of the equation. He was fighting against God. And so you can imagine there, verse 6, it says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord... What do you want me to do? Now, it's my personal opinion that at that moment, the old Paul died. The old Saul died. In an instant, 
he became a humbled, broken man, no longer demanding his will, but ready to do anything that the Lord required of him. And what did God tell him? Jesus said, then the Lord said, verse 6, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. You know what the Lord didn't do? The Lord didn't say, Paul, you're going to be blinded for a few days. I'm going to send a guy. He's going to lay his hands on you. You're going to receive your sight. And then you're going to start following me. I'm going to be sending you as a missionary. All these different. He didn't tell Paul that. He told him one thing. Just arise and go into the city. And there you'll be told what to do. Isn't that the way God leads you and I sometimes? If you're like me, I like the full picture. I, I like to, like, like Lord, okay, what's, the ne- what's beyond that, Lord? I, I hear you saying this, but, Lord, can you kind of give me a little bit of clue of how you're going to work this thing out? And so often the Lord doesn't do that. He just says, you know what? I told you one thing. Just obey that one thing and trust me for the rest. And that's what he did with Paul. That's what he does with all of us. He simply said, get up and go. Verse 7, And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Isn't it fascinating? The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to those men. Any idea? I mean, we, don't, we just don't know what happened to them. Well, then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But, <clears throat> excuse me. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, during those three days, Paul sitting there in total darkness... He can't see anything. The last thing he saw was that blinding light. So for three days, he has nothing to distract his eyesight anyways. And although he was physically blind during those three days, during that same time, he was now starting to gain spiritual sight. And the reason why is because we read in verse 11 that Paul spent that time praying. Three days and three nights. You know what? There was another man in the Bible who spent three days in total darkness without food or drink, who also spent those three days praying. Anybody know who that might be? It was Jonah. Jonah the prophet. Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights with no food or drink, and he spent that time praying as well. You know, like Paul... Jonah was going his own direction away from God's will. And like Paul, God got a hold of Jonah and got a hold of his attention. In fact, Paul, we don't have the prayers of Paul for those three days recorded in the scriptures, but we do have Jonah's prayer. In Jonah's prayer, in Jonah 2, verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly and said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. There's a psalm, in fact, we used to sing it as a worship song here uh, a number of years ago, but I love this psalm, Psalm 40, verse 1. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. You know when you and I pray to the Lord, you know what it says, he inclines? You know what that means? It means he goes like this. He leans over to listen carefully to your prayers. He did that to Jonah in the whale. He did that to Paul in his darkness. And he'll do that to you and and I as well. That psalm continues. It says, He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. 
And I can just imagine Paul before this time. You know, his life was established, but it was established on legalism. It was established on his, his, his practice as a, as a Pharisee. You know, he was righteous by his works, and at least in his own eyes. And so that's what he was established on. But he realized, man, he's in a pit. He's in a horrible situation being against God. But now his life is going to be established on the rock which the builders rejected on Jesus Christ. You know, God so often has a way of getting your and my attention by allowing you and I to be blinded by a circumstance. Have you ever had that happen in your life? I've had it happen in my life. Something happens and it just blinds me and I can't see beyond it. I can't see around it. I can't see above it. I can't. I just, it just overwhelms me. Maybe it's a family situation or, or, you know, a relational situation, or maybe it's a job situation or a health situation, but we get blinded by circumstances in our lives and we can't see. And just like Paul and just like Jonah, that's the perfect time for you and I to start praying to seek the Lord because he'll hear your prayers and he'll minister to you in those times of blindness. Verse uh, chapter 9, verse 10. It says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Well, who was Ananias? Was he some great apostle? Was he some great leader of the church in Damascus? It just says that he was a certain disciple. He was just a student of Jesus Christ. And God called him and laid his hands on, or God called him to lay his hands on a man named Saul who would eventually be a key figure in the spread of Christianity. He would be one who would write almost the majority of the New Testament scriptures. And God just picked this one man out of the crowd, a certain disciple, and said, hey, I want you to go do this thing for me. And Ananias went and did it. You know, sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm not a preacher. I haven't been, I don't have any training. I'm I'm just, I'm just a, you know, I just have this job that I do. And I tell you what, don't ever think that you're too insignificant for the Lord to use you in some mighty way. You never know whose life you might touch. You might touch the next Billy Graham. You have no idea, no way of knowing. Just be obedient to the Lord as he speaks to your heart. Well, Ananias, of course, you know, it's interesting. He says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And I can just imagine Ananias going, Lord, do you have the right guy? I mean, do you know this guy? I mean, he's a threat to Christianity. I'm sure maybe even Ananias is saying, man, I don't really want to go to this guy. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Paul was chosen by God. In fact, later on, Paul would write in Galatians 1.15 that God had separated him from his mother's womb and called him according to his grace. That God had, you know, he didn't recognize that now, but looking back in his, in his life, he goes, man, God, you've had your hand on my life all along. I look at my life, you know, and I can see how God had his hand in my life bringing me to where he is now. 
And I'm sure He's done the same thing with each one of you. Jesus, as He's speaking to His disciples in John 15, verse 16, He says, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whoever you, and that whatever you ask the Father in My name, He may give you. God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. God has chosen you and I that we would go and bear fruit in this life and to this generation. My question to you rhetorically, what kind of fruit has God chosen you to bear for his glory? Because we're all different. We all have different talents. We all have different personalities. And God has a unique calling on each one of our lives to use it for his glory. Well, back to the story. Jesus told Ananias there in verse 16, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He said, go, I'm going to show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now the question I have here, did God show Paul all at once how many things he must suffer? You know how many things Paul suffered? He describes it in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He says, he was in labors more abundant. He was in stripes above measure. He was in prisons more frequently. He was in deaths often. Five times he received 40 stripes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day in the ocean. He's been in journeys often in perils of water. Robbers, his own countrymen, the Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea. Pretty much everywhere he went, he was in perils. Among false brethren, he had weariness and toil, sleeplessness often, hunger and thirst. He fasted often, and he was in cold and nakedness. Do you think God said all that to, to Paul? Paul, this is, I'm going to give you a list. This is what's going to happen in your life. I don't think so. Having been a persecutor of Christians, however, I think Paul had an immediate understanding that there would be a consequence for him to embrace Jesus Christ. I think he had that understanding. But I think all those things that would be revealed to Paul, I think it was revealed to him during the course of his life. You know, every time you and I get an opportunity to suffer for the Lord, it's an opportunity for you and I to die to ourselves just a little bit more, just a little bit more every time. Well, verse 17, Ananias obeyed the Lord. It says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. You know, Ananias had heard of Saul of Tarsus, how he persecuted the church. Ananias had, obviously, according to the Scripture, had some reservation about going to Paul. But in obedience to Christ's command, he goes and he lays his hands on Paul. And what does he call him? Brother Saul. He calls him brother. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a question among theologians. When was Paul saved? Was he saved on the road to Damascus? Or was there just this period leading him up to this point where Ananias lays his hands on him? And at this point, Saul is now born again. 
And, you know, there's very smart men, even smarter than me, that have different opinions about it. There's a lot of men that are smarter than me, by the way. But uh, I happen to think that Paul was born again right there on the road to Damascus. And the reason why I say that is because immediately he was humbled. Immediately he asked the Lord, what do you want me to do? And when he gets to Damascus, he spends three days in prayer. And God hears his prayer and gives him a vision of Ananias coming to him to pray for him. And Ananias gets there and he already calls him brother. So in my opinion, and you know, I'm not saying you're wrong if you believe otherwise, but I think Saul was born again there on the road to Damascus. But that also raises a question. Because if that is the case, that Paul was saved there on the road to Damascus, notice that there's a filling of the Holy Spirit subsequent to salvation. Interesting. Well, now Paul is not only given spiritual sight, but he's given back his physical sight. And can you imagine Paul sitting there, you know, for three days, these, these disciples there in Damascus are just, they're taking care of him. They're, they're loving him. They're, maybe, they're, maybe they're just teaching him some things or speaking to him some things, whatever. They're, 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 just, they're there taking care of him. Paul has never seen them before. Now all of a sudden he receives his eyesight and he can see those brothers and probably those sisters there that have just been loving on him. Well, I'm going to jump down to verse 20 of chapter 9. It says, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who were amazed, then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who call on his name in Jerusalem? And he has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Now it's interesting. At this point in the scriptures, or approximately at this point in their scriptures, according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, at some point now, Paul leaves Damascus for about three and a half years. And where did he go? He went to the desert of Arabia. What did he do there? Scriptures does not tell us. Paul does not tell us. He just says, for three and a half years, I went to Arabia. What did he do there? Well, we can only speculate. Were there synagogues out there somewhere and he preached in the synagogues? Did he take Old Testament scripture with him and for three and a half years just pour himself into scriptures, finding out if Jesus was, you know, where the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, um, that he studied for three and a half years? Again, we don't know. But all that we do know is when he returned, he was spiritually stronger. That right away reminds me of another man in the Old Testament. He set out to do God's will in the very beginning, and he wasn't very successful at it. And God sent him out to a desert, and that was Moses. God sent him out to the backside of a wilderness, and he spent 40 years there where God was just doing a work in his life and preparing him. And when he returned, God was able to use him mightily. And so that period in the desert, whatever, whatever was going on for, for Paul, God was preparing him to become much more effective for his ministry. Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. You know, Paul evidently had such convincing arguments 
and proofs that Jesus is the Christ that the Jews that were there, the Pharisees, they couldn't resist. They couldn't argue against it. They, they, they were like losing the argument or losing the debate. And evidently, it got to the point where they started feeling threatened by Paul. And so now they want to persecute Paul. Verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Can you imagine? Here's Paul who, on his way to Damascus in the beginning, three and a half years earlier, prideful, he had a, a letter from the high priest. I mean, he was on a mission. He was going to accomplish all this stuff, and now he leaves Damascus under the cover of night, hidden in a basket. Can you imagine how hum- humbling that would have been for the great apostle Paul, the great, great Pharisee Saul? Verse 26, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was going with them at Jerusalem, coming uh, coming in and going out. So Paul gets to Jerusalem, and the the last thing they remembered is that he's a zealous, over-the-top guy that wants to kill Christians. I mean, he's, he's a madman. And now he supposedly is a disciple of the Lord. And those guys didn't want to have anything to do with him until Barnabas. Barnabas extends the right hand of fellowship to this guy that nobody else trusts, that nobody else wants to stand around, to this guy named Saul. In fact, later on in Galatians 1, verse 18 and 19, it tells us that Paul stayed with Peter 15 days and he saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. Can you imagine Paul? He already feels guilty for all the things that he's done. He's given his heart to the Lord. Now he's a humbled man. He's going to be more and more humbled as the Lord brings him into more and more experiences. But he comes back to Jerusalem and he, he, just, wants to, he just wants to be accepted by the disciples there and nobody wants to talk to him. Nobody wants to go near him. He's like a pariah to them. Until Barnabas, whose name means son of consolation or son of encouragement, comes up to him and takes him and brings him to the other disciples. I love Barnabas. I, I, I've been in churches before. You know, Teresa and I, we've gone back and forth between San Jose, California, and Minnesota a couple times. And and during those times, we visited churches. And I know some of you have done that, too. You've gone around, you visited churches. And I distinctly remember being visiting some churches, even smaller ones like this, where there wasn't a single Barnabas in there. We come in there, nobody wants to talk to you because everybody's got their, you know, they've got their friends that they don't see during the week. And now they see them and they're, and it's not that they're purposely being, you know, that they're like, oh, stay away from us. But they're just not thinking about it. And so they're getting together with their friends and then you're just standing there going, wow, this is kind of awkward. I guess maybe they don't really want me here and stuff. I've had that feeling before. And I'm sure many of you have had that too. I would pray that this church would be filled with nothing but Barnabases. Where anybody comes through these doors, man, they're just, you, you see someone standing there in the, in the foyer at the beginning of the service, man, you, you make it a point. You, in fact, you climb over each other to get to the person to say, to be the first one to say, hey, how are you doing? My name's Don. What's your name? Are you visiting and stuff? 
But you know, and, and, and I know you guys know that, but I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. And you know, it's not even just visitors too, because sometimes we have people who are members of our church who are, they're hurting and they've gone through, they've had a rough week or something's happened and they're here. And this is the place where we're to minister to them. This is the place where the body of Christ gets to be the body. We get to minister. You know, um, Paul later will use the analogy of, of our body, that the, even the local body, but the universal body of Christ, but the local body, our church, it's like a human body. And we have all these different parts. You know, he's speaking about the gifts of the Spirit. But, you know, I always think of that one commercial that they do out here, a, bo- a body that stays at rest, stays at rest, a body that's in motion, stays in motion or something like that. You know, and the whole point behind that is you need to be you need to be moving, you need to be exercising your body so that you stay healthy. And you know, if you don't, and I I sit in an office quite a bit, and uh, you know, if I go and do something physical, something you know, there there'll be certain muscles or certain parts of my body that I haven't exercised for quite a while, and it'll 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 be kind of it'll hurt, it's stiff and stuff. It's like man, I I should be doing this more often because man, that's really bad. Well, you know what? Each one of us is the body of Christ, and we're each members of it. And so each of us needs to be exercised. And the only way you do that is we interact with one another and minister to one another. So being a Barnabas doesn't mean you just look for the visitors, although that is definitely one of the most important things to do. But it's also be aware of your surroundings. Hey, there's a brother, there's a sister. There's nobody talking to them. They're just standing there by themselves. I want to, make a point. I want to be a Barnabas, and I want to go over and say, hey, I want to encourage you. How can I encourage you? How can I pray for you? What's going on in your life today? What's the Lord been showing you? That's what we need. Then we're really going to be the body of Christ here ministering to each other. And this is what Barnabas did. Well, continuing on, verse 29 says, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now, Paul is going to Tarsus, and he would, some 12 years approximately, would pass for uh, for Paul in Tarsus. You know, do you remember the story about the man in the Gadarenes that was demon-possessed? And Jesus, you know, there was the story with the, you know, the, the deviled ham story where all the pigs, you know, the demons wanted to go into the, to the pigs and they, they jumped into the sea and died. And uh, anyways, God touched that man's life. And Jesus is getting ready. The people of the, t- of the town there, they, you know, they've just lost a bunch of income and stuff, and they've, they're probably under conviction and everything, and they asked Jesus to leave their region. That's, that's the worst. That's the saddest commentary in the Bible where someone asked Jesus to leave. But that's what they did. And so Jesus is a perfect gentleman. He gets in the boat with his disciples. He's getting ready to go over to the other side. And what is that one guy who's just been healed, just been touched by Jesus, what does he do? He says, Lord, I want to go with you. He's clamoring to get into the boat because he wants to go with Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, he wants to go. And what did Jesus tell him? Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has compassion on you. Go back to your family. Go back to those that knew you as the demonic possessed person and share what God's done in your life. I think this is what Paul is doing now that God sent him to Tarsus where he grew up as this young Pharisee. You know, 
We know from scriptures that Paul had at least a sister and a nephew, so he had some siblings, at least one that we know of. So there was family around. We don't know for sure, but I'm presuming that his parents might still have been alive, although the scriptures doesn't tell us. But can you imagine if they were alive? Paul comes back. They've, sent, they've spent everything they can on this great education for Paul the Apostle, or not Paul the Apostle, Paul the Pharisee, studied under Gamaliel, you know, and now he comes back, and now he's a follower of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Paul, what happened to you? I thought you were a Jew. You know, even today when Jewish people come to faith in the Lord, they're ostracized from their families. You mean you're, you're, you believe in that Jesus stuff? You're, you're, you mean you're no longer a Jew? I've heard that. People have told me that. They've been asked that by their family. You're no longer a Jew. They're like, what do you mean? I can't change who I am, but I love Jesus now. And I think God sent Paul back to minister to his family. Whether they accepted Jesus or not, we don't know. But I can imagine that at first his parents were shocked. They were probably embarrassed by Paul. They probably ostracized him. And I wonder if God was just using this as another phase in Paul's life to get him just to, to, to be a witness to those around him. You know, um, I grew up in a Christian home, and I gave my heart to the Lord, and, and, uh, but then I, I got into trouble, and uh, most kids do. We get, you know, do bad things and stuff and stuff that I'm not really proud of necessarily. And then I gave my heart to the Lord and, and, uh, it was in Minnesota. I gave my heart back to the Lord and then met Teresa. We got married, moved back to California. The first time we were back, it's like, I'm showing Teresa where, where I live. This is my stomping grounds. This is where we did this. This is where I did this. And I'm, these memories are coming back or, Oh, this is what I did over there, you know, and stuff. And you know, the Lord started doing a work in my heart. And he, he got me to the point where I felt like I needed to go back to certain individuals and apologize for things that I've done and go back and, and basically be a witness to these people that I had, that they had, the last time they had known me, I wasn't a very good person. It was a very humbling, it was a very frightening thing. I think Teresa probably thought, man, this guy's nuts. What is he doing that for? I literally would knock on doors. People would open the door and go, I don't know if you remember me, but I did this. And I would tell them, and, and it was just, and, you know, it was just a, a period in my life. God was just doing this work in my life, and I, it's done now. I, I feel so much better. You know, sometimes we sin against people, and all we want to do, the easiest thing to do is just say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. And the Bible says he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us. But, you know, sometimes we need to go back to the people we've hurt. We need to do restitution. We, we need to say, you know what, I, I've, I've sinned against you. Not only against God, but I've sinned against you. And I'm here to make it right. Will you forgive me? And so I think that's probably what happened in Paul's life. You know, we don't know anything else that happened in Paul's life. But it, wasn't, it was relatively quiet as far as scriptures go. But I can guarantee it wasn't wasted time for Paul. I guarantee God was undoubtedly using that portion of Paul's life to prepare him for all the things that he would suffer for Christ's name. Well, we're going to finish up the story here. We're going to jump to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Because at this point in scriptures, the story, the narration switches to Peter and, and John off and on, and then it goes back to Saul, and then eventually it's going to just figure, it's just going to basically figure on the Apostle Paul after that, Paul and Barnabas, and then later Paul and Silas and Timothy. 
Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 19, chapter 11. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out to Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue uh, with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So here's these people getting saved up in Antioch. And the church in Jerusalem saying, man, all these people are getting saved. Let's send Barnabas up to find out, make sure there's nothing kooky going on, you know. Let's get the scoop. And so they send Barnabas up. He sees everything that's going on. It's like, this is awesome. Wow, the Lord's really doing a work. And then what did he do? It says, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. When it says that Barnabas departed for Saul or for Tarsus to seek Saul, that word seek, it doesn't mean that he just like, okay, I'm going to go. It, it means he searched diligently for Paul. He was on a mission at that point to find Paul. Nobody knew where he was. All they knew was that he had gone to Tarsus. And so Barnabas, man, true to his character, he goes out of his way to find Tars, uh, Paul, who's by himself there in Tarsus, to bring him back and encourage him. Hey, we could really use you back in Antioch, man. I, I, man, you're, you, God's got His hand on your life. Hey, can, can will you come back with me? Let's let's minister alongside each other. Again, that's what a Barnabas does. They they look for the potential in people and they try to encourage people in the things of the Lord. And man, if, if there's anything I ha- that you take out of this message today, I would pray that you would, you're personally, you, each one of us here, we go, Lord, show me how I can be more of a Barnabas here in Calvary Chapel, Rochester. How can I minister encouragement to my brothers and my sisters, to visitors that come through the door on Wednesday nights? Man, you know, we're all creatures of habit, and we all like to sit in certain places, and sometimes I kind of mix it up, sit in different places. But you know what? Look for those that are by themselves. And go, man, I want to sit over there and I want to minister to that person. I want to just find out how they're, I want to encourage them. Uh, uh, what it takes, it's nothing, it's not rocket science. All it takes is being aware of your surroundings. None of us want to exclude anybody. I know that. I know the hearts of us here. We, we all have good hearts in that regard. But sometimes we just don't think about it. We just don't realize, oh, oh there's a person on the corner of my eye that's just by themselves. And we need, that's what a Barnabas, Barnabas goes, there's a person over there by themselves. I want to go minister to them. I can talk to these people later. I, I want to minister. And, and so, if anything, I would encourage you to do that. So, Paul goes with Barnabas, evidently. And it says, So that was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas, they serve alongside they're not claiming glory they're not going trying to demand they're they're just they're just ministering alongside each other and the church recognizes it and the holy spirit sets apart barnabas and paul to go on their first missionary trip and at that point the church isn't like what do you mean paul and barnabas why are you calling them it was obvious because paul and barnabas were ministering together side by side as a team 
And so that's my prayer for us here today that, uh, again, my biggest prayer is that we would seek to be more like Barnabas, sons of encouragement and consolation among one another. Why don't you stand up and let's go Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminder in Scripture, Lord. We've read about Barnabas before, Lord. We know, we've probably even heard this Bible study before, maybe many times. But Lord, you remind us because sometimes we forget. And Lord, I just thank you for that reminder this morning. And I pray that we might be encouraged this morning, Lord, to be the body of Christ in the body here at Calvary Chapel. And so I thank you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord. I love each one of them. And I know that each one of them, no one is insignificant here in this body, Lord. You have a plan and a purpose for each one. And I pray that we, as Barnabas, would believe all things, Lord. That, that's agape love. We would believe all things. We would, we would look for the best in people, and we would try to encourage them, Lord God. And so thank you for that reminder this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.